You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Soundtrack and uh, each title is a, a real song. And as we're wrapping up the series, we've, we've talked about love, we've talked about relationships, we've talked about marriage. And today we're going to talk about children and family and parenting. And as I was thinking about that this week, I, I really was reminded of a, a conversation uh, that I had recently. Now, now here's the thing. If you've been around uh, Redemption Church long enough, or if you've known me long enough, you know that I've never claimed to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. I've just never claimed to be the smartest. And, and so I rely on people who are smarter than me and wiser than me. And as a, a church planter, as we've started a brand new start from scratch church, one of the benefits I've had is to have uh, people in my life who are coaches, uh, who help me, to help me think through things. And I have a guy in my life that, that he's like a Yoda figure to me. Uh, he, we talk a few times a month on the phone, and he just asks me a lot of questions. And it's usually frustrating, but it's, re- it's usually really revealing. And somehow uh, I gain all kinds of wisdom from him just asking me questions. And uh, a few weeks ago, he had asked me a question and said, hey, I want you to send me uh, like a 30-word response via email to this question after you've thought about it. And so he asked me the question, I thought about it, and I sent him an email that happened to be about three pages long if you printed it. And so at our next coaching call, he, he picked up the phone and he just began to laugh at me. And uh, I was like, what was so funny? And he said, bro, you sent me a litany. You didn't send me a response. You sent me a litany of a response to that question. I said, well, I just wanted to be clear, and I just wanted to clarify, and I just wanted to give you all my thoughts. And he had said this to me, which is what I want to say to you this morning as we start this message. He said, we have an absolute tendency to complicate things in life. And he said, bro, you took my question and made it so complex and added so many challenges to it that I'm just impressed by your ability to make things complex. And at first I was a little offended by that, but the reality is that it's true that every single one of us has a propensity, I at least know it's true for me, and I believe it's probably true for you, that that we have this tendency to just complicate things in our lives, that we, we have a tendency to make things more difficult We have a tendency to take things and make simple things more complex. In fact, we have this ability to take decisions or situations and make them way more confusing than they really need to be. That every single one of us just has this ability to take whatever's right before us. Maybe it's a decision that we're facing. Maybe it's something that we're trying to figure out. We have this ability to make it way more complicated than it really needs to be. And the reason I want to talk about that for a moment is because the reality is, is that when we are faced with too much complexity, when we're faced with too much confusion, and when we make things more difficult than, we need, than they really need to be, what happens is, is we tend not to do anything, that we actually become totally overwhelmed with the situation. We become overwhelmed with the complexity. We become overwhelmed with the amount of choices that we have. We become overwhelmed with the possibilities of what might happen and the consequences of what could happen. In fact, one of the maybe greatest illustrations for this is this guy whose name is Clyde Beatty. Now, here's the thing. You've probably never heard about my friend Clyde, but you've probably seen things in your life that come from Clyde. I want to tell you a little bit about my friend 
Clyde Beatty. Now, we're not really friends because he was born in Ohio in 1903, so he's just a little bit older than I am. But Clyde's story is he, he had a little bit of a, a rough start in life. And so in high school, uh, he ran away from home and joined the circus. Uh, maybe not the greatest career path choice, but for Clyde, that was his dream, was to join the circus. And so he ran away from home to start a brand new career in the circus industry, and Clyde started out as a cage cleaner. Uh, so you can just imagine, his worst day at work was probably worse than your day at work. I mean, you just kind of think about all that that entailed. And so Clyde's like dream and his aspiration was to become a lion tamer. Like, that was his thing. And the good news for Clyde was, is during his lifetime in the circus industry, a lion tamer was like the top position that people got famous, uh, people got respect, they were really well known. If you could get into the, the circle with the lion and somehow tame it. The good thing for Clyde, the bad thing for most lion tamers, is most lion tamers didn't live very long. Uh, most lion tamers in this time were killed in the ring by lions, which meant there were always job openings. Like if you wanted to be a lion tamer, you just had to wait a while and it, you know, there was just usually an opening in the circus for a lion tamer uh, and, and they didn't really last very long. Now here's what's interesting about Clyde. Clyde would go from a guy who ran away to join the circus to becoming one of the most famous lion tamers in the history of his time. In fact, if you think about a lion tamer, in your mind, if you've seen pictures, if you've ever been to the circus, you think about someone that usually has a whip. Uh, they don't do this anymore, but they used to have a pistol strapped to their side, and they had a chair with them. Clyde was known as the guy who made bringing a chair into the circus ring famous. Now, I just want to tell you the truth. In his autobiography, Clyde said that that wasn't his idea. That when he was a stall cleaner, he saw other lion tamers uh, take stools into the lion ring. But he is known as the guy that perfected the art. He is known as the guy that made that the most famous. And some people even credit him with having the idea of taking a four-legged stool into the circus ring with him. So if you, when you think about a lion tamer, if you think about a guy with a whip, a gun, and a stool, you're thinking about Clyde. Now here's what's interesting about Clyde. Clyde is credited with being one of the few lion tamers in his time that was not killed by a lion. Uh, most of his colleagues actually died by an animal attacking them. Clyde was attacked at one point, but he uh, survived and he just got right back in the ring. In fact, Clyde is really famous because what he discovered is that using a chair with a lion, anything with four legs would confuse a lion. Because before a lion would strike, it would have to focus on its target. And so what Clyde would do is take a stool and put it into the front of the face of a lion. And what would happen is the lion would try to focus on all four legs of the chair. And what would happen is because a lion couldn't make a decision of which leg to attack because it desired to attack them all, it would actually choose to do nothing. In fact, Clyde was one of these guys that felt totally comfortable with just having a chair between him and a lion because he knew that the lion couldn't make the decision to attack him. It was too busy focused on which leg of the chair would it focus. Now, Clyde was a guy that wasn't satisfied with just taming lions. In fact, he became famous 
because he would take multiple animals in the circus ring at once with just a whip, a chair, and a pistol. In fact, his greatest show was known that he took in a lion, a tiger, a cougar, and a hyena all at one time. And he would just simultaneously show them the stool and they would become so overwhelmed by the choice, by the complexity of what was in front of them that they would choose to do nothing and just look at the chair. Now you might ask the question, why in the world would you talk about Clyde Beatty, the lion tamer, as we're talking about children and parenting? And here's why. If you're a parent, you already know this to be true. If you desire to hear every single person on the face of the planet's opinion, simply have a child. Like it is like a license the minute that you begin to have children that people feel as though that they can tell you exactly what they feel and their opinion is for your life. In fact, I would go as far to say that the thing that I was most unprepared for as a new father when Audrey was pregnant with Shane was that people just felt like they could tell us what we needed to know without us even asking or soliciting their advice. Like, like maybe you've had this experience, like we would be in the store and absolute strangers would like come up and just touch Audrey's belly. Like people that we didn't even know. And I'm like, who are you and why are you touching my wife? And then like, so people would always try to guess the gender of the child. People would ask really weird questions so that they could try to predict the gender of the child. That like we would be in the store like shopping and, and people would ask questions. And then you could just see like the judgment in their eyes as you like answered their questions. They're like, oh, wow. Hmm, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd do that. Like, I remember that when we finally picked a name for Shane, we decided that we weren't going to tell anybody the name. Like, we kept it a secret because, like, we didn't want anybody to ruin the name for us. You know, like, that you would, like, tell somebody, oh, we're thinking about the name Shane or we're thinking about the name Nolan. And somebody go, oh, that's a cute name. I knew someone that had that name once. They're an axe murderer. <laughs> like, people just have this ability to tell you what they think and, like, ruin things for you. And I'll never forget that, that we once had an appointment with a doctor, and, and he was like asking us about, uh, you know, hey, are people giving you opinions and that kind of stuff? And we were like, yeah, like totally overwhelmed with, with this. And he, I remember, I never forget, he, he told us, he goes, here's my two, two pieces of advice is your doctor. And we said, okay. He said, number one, no walkers with wheels. He was like, I'm just telling you, no walkers with wheels. That's my thing. He's like, if you buy a walker for your child with wheels on it, I won't be your doctor anymore. So we were like, okay, no more walkers with wheels. And he was like, the second, is the, the second thing is this, figure out what works for your child and ignore everyone else. He's like, just do that. Just, just figure out what works for your child and then ignore everybody else, which was really great advice because I remember when, when Shane was little, like people would just come up to us and tell us everything they thought we were doing wrong. And what was interesting, what was interesting, maybe the most interesting thing for me was that people who didn't have kids thought they knew what was best. And what I began to realize is, is the only perfect parent on the planet is the person that doesn't have any kids yet. Like, because once you become a parent, you begin to realize that, like, none of us are perfect, that we're all trying to figure this thing out. And all kinds of people have all kinds of opinions. In fact, just, just yesterday, I went on Amazon.com and just typed the word parenting into the search bar, and there are close to 250,000 books on the topic of parenting. That's a lot of opinions. That's a lot of philosophies. That's a lot of stuff 
to try to digest and figure out in our lives. And see, here's, here's the problem. I think every single parent, or whether we would like admit it publicly or not, so I'll admit it for us, that every single parent in the back of our minds, our hearts, we have, we have this one thought, and it's this, I really don't want to screw my children up, right? Like, we, we really don't want to mess this thing up. Like, our hope is that one day our kid would be old enough that he would be ready for, like, a career or college and not need years of counseling. It would be our fault. Like, every single one of us wants to make sure we have kids who are, are well-rounded. But the reality is, is this desire to try to be a perfect parent can actually paralyze us. It's just like the lines that when we get faced with so much challenges, when there's so much complexities, when there's so much opinions or philosophies or, or things that we could do or shouldn't do in front of us, the reality is rather than doing what we want to do or doing what we think we should do, we just don't do anything because we can become so overwhelmed by complexity, so overwhelmed by choices, so overwhelmed by opinions, so overwhelmed by the desire to be perfect that it actually paralyzes us. And so what I want to do today is I really want to look at two big themes from the scriptures this morning. I promise you as a parent who does not have everything figured out, that I'm not going to give you a bunch of opinions. I'm not going to give you a bunch of philosophies. In fact, what I want to do this morning is open up our Bibles and look at the living, breathing, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Because I think as we get into some of this stuff, It'll actually empower us. I think it'll actually give us some freedom and help us out. And so what I want to do is just get into the Word of God this morning because I was reminded of this a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. I'm just in a place in my life where I appreciate uh, dead theologians who had really great beards. I'm just, I'm just there. And he was one of them. And he, he said this. He said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And so I think that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Now, here's the thing. I understand that when we start to talk about parenting, uh, that's a really narrow topic. In fact, uh, sometimes people would say, well, hey, you, maybe we shouldn't talk about stuff that's a narrow topic because you might exclude some people or some people might go, hey, uh, I don't need to hear about this. Like, I am highly aware that there are people in this room that you have children my age and you know more about parenting than I do. Okay, I get that. So I'm not going to try to like change your mind or influence you with opinions and philosophies, but I want to talk about some scriptures this morning. And here's the thing. I think when we talk about parenting, it's really an all skate. I think it really involves all of us. And here's why. I think in, in, in our lives, or maybe even in this room, there's some of us that want to have kids. There's some of us that already have kids. Uh, there's some of us in this room that your kids have kids. So you're not parenting, you're grandparenting. And here's, and here's the other reason that I think this is for all people is because if you're part of a local church, there's such a thing as spiritual parenting. That actually, just you don't have to be a parent to have children living in your house. That there's actually something really significant that happens in a local body where you can actually help shepherd and help other people on their spiritual journey, and it's called a spiritual parenting. I love the way that Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, For though you have had countless guides in Christ, you have not had many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
that Paul says that there's actually specific relationships where he said, hey, I'm going to be like your father in Jesus. And I'm going to, as you follow me, I'm going to show you what it means to be a Christ follower. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be a man in the name of Jesus. And we need women to do that. We need men to do that. There's those of you in this room that, that maybe you're in a season of life that really what God's calling you to do is to walk alongside other people on their spiritual journey. That I think a spiritual parent is someone who helps another person know Jesus and grow in their walk. And so when we talk about parenting, it's not a limited thing. I think it's a, a church thing. In fact, one of the things that's really, really interesting is if you really get through the scriptures and you see the way that the scriptures talk about the church, that the church body is talked about in a lot of different ways. And one of the most significant ways, I think, maybe one of the, the things that I'm most drawn to in scripture is that the scriptures actually talk about the church as a family. I want to show you two quick examples. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That he goes, listen, the church is like a family, that when we gather, it's like we're members of the same household, that the church is like a great big family, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're sons and daughters of God, that the way we treat one another should have brotherly and sisterly affection for one another. That, that also means that there's times in our lives that we need spiritual parents to help us grow up. He, he says it again just a little bit differently in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And what he's saying is, hey, the, the, the church is like a family. That when we come together, that we're like a great big extended family. That when we get together, we, we don't always all fit in the same room. We're not all together all the time. But what happens is there's these occasions where like a great big family, we get together and we love one another and we should do good to one another and we should care for one, uh, one another. And uh, we were having some conversation this week, and it, it, I like to talk about it this way, that, you know, the church is a family, and there's always room at the table for one more. But that's kind of what it is, that we're a community of a family, that that's, that's part of being part of a church. It's not like, hey, I just go to that place, or hey, I'm just really entertained over there. Hey, that pastor's a really great speaker, or they have a really great ministry, that it's deeper than that, that it's more than that. There's this idea of, hey, that's my spiritual family, that we're in this together. We do life together. We pursue Jesus together, and we care for one another. Now, what's really interesting is if you take that, and you begin to see that both the church, the household of God, and the local individual family, we really have the same purpose. Because you really begin to read through the scriptures that you would see that the way that God designed the church and the way God designed families, that they're supposed to do the same thing. That both the church and the family are, are examples of God working in the hearts of his sons and his daughters. That we begin to see God on display as he works in our hearts in our lives, that we begin to live in such a way through Christ that we are people for his possession that live for his glory and that we do that together in community. And at the heart of the church and at the heart of the local family, uh, that it's supposed to be Christ-centered. In fact, I, I have a friend that says it this way. He says, for family to be that God, all that God intended it to be, it has to be Christ-centered. For the family to be all that God intended it to be, it has to be Christ-centered. There's something about putting Jesus in the middle of the family and saying, hey, uh, we revolve around Jesus. Our family's based on Jesus. There's love and compassion and grace and discipline and discipleship. 
And then, and then the scripture begins to speak to like, well, what's the goal of the family or what's the heart of the family? And there's really two things that I want to look at in our time together this morning is, is really the how, like what does scripture say as parents? Like how are we supposed to parent our children? And then the purpose, why? And I think we get the how all the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Now, if you get really, really technical, this verse is called the Shema. In the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish nation would, would rehearse this or say this verse multiple times a day. Uh, this was something that was very, very literal and very, very specific for them. And Moses gives this to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, this might sound familiar to you because when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is what he quotes. Hey, just love God. I want you to love God, and I want you to love people. And what, what, the, what he begins to tell us is that the heart of parenting and the heart of the discipleship are the same, that we're supposed to help people. We're supposed to help people in the church. We're supposed to help our children in the home really love God. Now, I'm really intrigued by this because of all the things that Moses could have told the nation of Israel. He says, hey, I want you to love. And I think the reason that this is so important, I think that we have to see this, that the commandment is love. It doesn't say, hey, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And by the way, teach your kids to be really, really good. Like teach them to say yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what it says. It's not a moral thing. It's not saying, hey, make sure they're really, really good. It doesn't even say, hey, hear and do this. Make sure, make sure in your family you guys memorize all the commandments. Make sure, make sure you memorize all that stuff. Make sure that you follow all the rules and follow all the laws and do all the right things. What the, what the commandment is this, is love. But that above all else, learn to love God. Like have this, have this passionate pursuit of loving God more and more. And I think the reason that it's so interesting, I think the reason that it's so specific that it says love is because I think love is probably the emotion that we feel the deepest and the strongest in our lives, but it's also the most compelling. Uh, maybe think about it this way. The things that we love, the love for those things motivate us. Or the things that we don't love, our, our, our lack of love for those things motivate us. The, the, our ability to know right and wrong is important, but love will always trump what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And here's how we know this is true. Because every time you go out to eat at a restaurant, you know that like the superfood organic salad is probably the best thing to eat, but you really love cheesecake. And see, that's why restaurants sell way more cheesecake than they sell salad. Because our love trumps what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And what, what, what Moses begins to tell the nation of Israel, directed and inspired by God, is, hey, love is really important. That love above all things motivate us. That when we make decisions, when we look at the world, that really the context in which we make our decisions, the things that motivate us the most, the things that form us the most, are the things that we love. And so what Moses says is, hey, love God. Pursue that love of God. Flan, fan that, that white, hot, flame that you would love God because if you love God, 
then your love for him, knowing the love that he has for you, would motivate you above all else. Now, we tend not to think this way, but it's true. This is why you can find generations of families that love the same things. That you can have conversations with people, and like you can find families that are like, we are Ford people. We drive Ford. And you go, well, where, where did that come from? Well, it's the love of Ford was passed down. Which is why you could find other families that are like, no, we're Chevy. We love Chevy. And you go, well, why do you love Chevy? He goes, well, because grandpa loved Chevy and everything was Chevy. And we think Ford means fix or replace daily. And you go, well, where did you learn that? Well, it was love. This is why you can find generations of Bears fans and, and Packers fans. Like you've never had to teach your sons and daughters how to pick a football team, right? It just kind of happens. Now, in my family, it's, it's different because we're divided. And we have Bears fans and Packers fans. And I just blame the Chicago Bears, that I have Packer fans in my family because they have not shown them a reason to believe in them for at least eight years. And so I have one son who's a Packer fan because there's people in our family that love the Packers. And one of my, one of my sons is a Bears fan because I alone am a Bears fan and he's just with me. But I really think the reason he's with me is just to make the other family members mad. So I don't know how long it's going to last. This is, this is why there's, there's families that can love things that are just ridiculous. Like This is why there are people who devote their life to NASCAR. A bunch of people in a car making left turns. I just don't understand. But like I saw people on Facebook being like praying for the weather because I think there's a big NASCAR race this weekend. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, go drive around the parking lot and you've got NASCAR. I mean, I just don't understand. But the things we love tend to get passed down through generations. And this is why Moses says, learn to love God. That, that, that love would be so motivating, that, that your love would, would speak volumes, that it's not about empty religion, that it's not about telling your kids, hey, you're going to go to church and we're going to go and we're going to punch in and we're going to punch out and we're just church people. It's more than that. It's about, do you love Jesus? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done for you? It's like when you make tea, if you make good tea, you let that tea bag seep in the water. You let it marinate and percolate in there. And it's like, do you do that with your love for Jesus? Do you talk about who he is? Do you talk about why you love him? Do you talk about the way he pursues you? And see, as a parent, our single greatest commodity the thing that is the most important or at least the most valuable to us is our time. I have never met a parent who is looking for more to do. Never. I've never met a parent that's like, man, we have so much time. I am so bored. Like, I need to add more to my schedule. I've never met a parent like that. And like, just to be totally transparent, like in, in our own family, and like, listen, I'm, I'll be totally honest with you. Honestly, I know how to be, like, my wife is amazing and does, like, most of this stuff. But I'm, like, just there, and somehow I get exhausted. But it's like, in a typical day, like, somehow just getting kids up and dressed and fed and to school and to get some chores done and to feed them again and bathe them again and to get them in bed by 9 p.m. is a huge chore. But, like, if it happens, I feel like we're winning, like if we can get through the day and we have as many kids as we started with and they're fed and they're clean and the house didn't burn down, I feel like we're being pretty successful as parents. And see, like the thing is, as we talk about, see, I'm speaking to somebody here. Like, you know, 
I think what happens is, is when we hear about this, like, I'll just be honest, I'll, I'll put the burden on me. When I hear scriptures like this, I'm like, I don't know when I would fit a, a whole Bible study in with my kids. I'm like, when do we do that? Like, when do we sit down and go, okay, kids, we're having family Bible study tonight. And like, how does that work and how does that go? And see, I love, I love the scripture because as we really meditate on the word, I think we begin to see that God knows us so well. Because he continues on in Deuteronomy and says this, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. He says, And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart, and you should teach them diligently to your children, and you should talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when we think about shepherding or discipling our children, when we think about teaching them to love the Lord, it can be really, really overwhelming. But here's, here's what the scripture says, right? It says, you, you, do you have a kitchen table or a couch in your house? Like, do you have a place to sit in your home? If the answer is yes, you can do this. Like, you're already there. You're halfway there because the scripture goes, uh, listen, when you sit in your home, like when you sit around together, that's the perfect opportunity to have some conversation. I, I know in our house, like dinner is one of those times that we, we tend to protect because we have more significant, meaningful conversation around the dinner table than at any other time. That there's something about just having a meal together that provides conversation to hear what's happening in our lives. It's just a time of, of sharing. And like, it's not always some great Bible study time. It's just a, hey, what's going on with you? And hey, what are you learning? And hey, what, what's going on with you? The scripture says, when you walk by the way, it goes, hey, when, when, when you're in your car, when, when you're running errands, when you're going from here to there, like, that's an opportunity to teach your kids about Jesus. I think one of the problems we have with teaching our kids about Jesus is that we've punted so much of our kids' time to technology. That when we get in the car, we turn on the TV, or when we get in the car, we, we pass back the smartphone. But what the scripture says, listen, is when you, when you sit down together, use that time to, to stir up your affection for Jesus. When you're in the car, use that time. Because like, listen, you can lock your kids in the car and there's nothing they can do about it. Like you have an audience who can't leave as long as you're in the car. It's a perfect opportunity to have conversation. The, the scripture goes on that when you, loud, when you lie down at night, when you rise, that, that there's something significant about that bedtime that you can tuck your kids in and, and have conversation or maybe pray with them and, and just check on their hearts and their lives. That, I love this because what, what the scripture says is this, is that discipling or parenting your children is just a part of your life. It's not like another thing to do. It's not like, hey, we do this every Wednesday from 6 to 8 p.m. That if we love Jesus as mom and dads, as we love Jesus as men and as women, that we use all of our life as opportunity to speak to them. Grandparents, that's true for you as well, that as you're having interaction with your grandchildren, that in those moments, it's those opportunities to just to overflow the love you have into their lives so they can see it. That if you're a spiritual parent, that if you're walking alongside people, it's those, hey, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? Or, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee together. Or, hey, let's, let's talk about what's going on in our lives. It's in those, those sweet moments that the, the real discipleship happens. That there's something significant about doing things that stirs our hearts for Jesus. 
Like I know in our family, one of the things that we just love as a family is music. And so we, when we get in the, the car, we, we usually if we're going to be in the car for a while, we have a playlist and we let our kids set the playlist for the most part. So that means we, we listen to a lot of like Toby Mac and Colton Dixon and songs that they choose, but they're all about Jesus. And, and like we just crank the radio and we just let them sing. And if you ever go on a road trip with us, you'll get invited to sing along. I mean, we just kind of do that because it just stirs up their heart. It's just something that it's positive and it points them towards Jesus. And here's the thing. I'm not saying do anything that I do. Here's what I'm saying. Figure out what works for you. Figure out what opportunities you have. Figure out those precious moments that you have in your life where you can begin to just have conversations. And here's the thing. Even if your kids are older, it's never too late. You can begin to just share and teach and give direction to them. Because here's one of the things I'm absolutely convinced of. In fact, I'm so convinced of this, I believe it for your life, I believe it for my life, and I believe it for our children's life. And here's what it is. I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. I really believe that. I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for my children's life. And see, what's really, really interesting is the scriptures kind of make this correlation between the household of God and, and our households, that there's something significant about the church and the family that there's similar. I think that's why when, uh, when the scriptures talk about church leadership, one of the qualifications for an elder is how does he lead in his home? And that might seem like a weird qualification, except for they're so similar. The scripture goes, hey, if you're thinking about an elder in a church, first look at his home because the household of faith and just the family household are so similar. And that means as a church, one of our goals and one of our desires is to help you know who Jesus is, to help you discover uh, the truth of the scripture so that you would know your giftedness, so that you would discover God's purpose and plan for your life. And we want to see you experience that and live that out. It's the same thing I want for my children. I want my children to know who Jesus is. I want them to know the truth of the scripture and I want them to discover the giftedness that they have so that the Holy Spirit can work in them so that they can live on purpose and mission in their own lives. See, one of the reasons that God gives you the children that he's given you, right parents? Because you've had that thought before. Like if we're just be totally real, there's times, usually in times of conflict or when you're really overwhelmed, you think to yourself, whose child is this and why do I have them? It's true. It's okay. You can laugh. Some of your kids are here, so you don't want to laugh too loud. But you know in quiet moments, you've thought that, like, why is this child mine? What did I do to deserve this? And your parents told you that it was payback for what you did to them. So here's the thing. Your child was specifically given to you by God for a reason. That if we really believe the scriptures, if we really take some of the things that are in there, that it says that even when your child was in the womb, that God knew the hairs on the head, that he knew what he was doing, that he put that child together in such a way that it has a purpose and a plan and a significance. And God gave that child to you for a reason. And here's why. So that you could raise and teach and disciple and invest in that child so they would be the person that God created them to be. The reason that God gave you the child he gave you is because he has a plan and a purpose for that child's life, and your parenting is a significant part of that. 
Now, see, I would take that to the next level and say, as a pastor, that's what I think about a church. I think the reason that we're all here together is because God has something significant he wants to do in our lives, that he has a purpose and a plan for every single one of us. And our job as a church is that Ephesians 5, that we would equip the saints so that they might know who God is, be so empowered by the Spirit that they would live on mission and on purpose and that the world would be changed a life at a time. And so how we go about that really, really matters. So one of the questions I think we have to ask ourselves, one of the questions I ask myself all the time about my kids is this, why did God give me this child? Because parents, if you have more than one, here's what you know, kids are so different. Like I have two kids and they are so incredibly different that it blows my mind. And you should pray for my wife. Because moms, you know this, like usually when she cooks dinner, there's three different dinners because of the preferences of the children at the table. Like one's cheese, one's no cheese. One's mac and cheese, one's no mac and cheese. They're so different. And so we ask the question, why did God give me this child? God, what's your plan and the purpose for this child's life? And what do I need to do? What do I need to invest in this child so that he or she can become all that God desires them to be? Because there's one more big theme about children in the Bible that I think is really, really powerful and really, really significant. In Psalm chapter 127, verses 3 and 5, Solomon, who's the wisest guy on the planet, talks this way about children. He says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. It means they're a gift of God. It means they're significant. It means your kids are part of your life and the legacy that you leave. He says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Someone goes, hey, your children are actually like arrows. And see, I love that because you go, well, what's an arrow? Well, an arrow is a weapon. At best, it's a tool. And he says, listen, a child is like, an arrow in the hand of a warrior. Now listen, if you put an arrow in my hand, I might shoot myself. I don't know. I might hit the target, maybe. But you put an arrow in the hand of a warrior and some serious stuff can happen. Listen, you, you put an arrow in the hand of a warrior and it strikes fear into the heart of the enemy. You put an arrow into a hand of a warrior, it is effective and it has purpose. You put an arrow into the hand of a warrior, it becomes dangerous and something that should be respected. I see when it comes to children, even when it comes to people, we, we live in such a culture where we kind of go between these two polar opposites. Where we, we, get, we get so fascinated by the safety of our children. And so we focus on keep them safe. This is why Perel sells millions of dollars of hand sanitizer every year. That's why there's co companies that market to you and tell you that their product is safer for your child than the other company's product, and we buy it because we get so overwhelmed with keeping our kids safe, and then we're so overwhelmed on the other opposite with sports, because we all think our kid will be the next Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, or Aaron Rodgers. And I have to say Aaron Rodgers because no parent wants their kid to be Jay Cutler. That's just true. And see, like, this already happened, just to show you that this dichotomy is real, because I said some sports thing, and see, some of you safety parents, well, not my kid. They, get, they can get concussions in football, which is true. And so we go back and forth between safety and sports and safety and sports. And like, I know parents that would die on the hill of keeping their kids safe. And I know parents that would die on the hill of just getting their kids in the traveling league so they can get a scholarship. And here's the thing. I always have this thought about what if our kids were made for 
more. In fact, I love this quote by Reggie Joyner in his book, Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. He says, we're fine if our children never climb a mountain as long as it guarantees that they never get hurt. But what if your children were made for the mountains? The ultimate mission of the family is not to protect your children from all harm, but to mobilize them for the mission of God. It is possible to hold on to your kids so tightly that we forget the ultimate goal of parenting is to let go. You see, one of the goals of parenting is to invest in love and direct, to teach and disciple and discipline our children so that one day, so that one day we let go. So that one day they leave the household to go live on mission, to go live in the world, to go live on purpose. So that one of the things that I do from time to time when I think about my kids, I think, hey, I'm raising my kids, but how will they impact the world? Like, what lives will my, my children impact? What, what will they be one day? Where will they go one day? And my job as a parent, as like a warrior, is to give that arrow everything it needs, to make sure that it's effective, that it's ready. And then when the time is right, I point the arrow in the direction of its target, and I let the arrow fly. And the arrow, the arrow flies by the sovereignty of God, empowered by the Spirit to do what God has called it to do. In fact, as a parent, maybe the most sobering, maybe the most challenging thing I've ever read comes from Jim Elliott. And if you've been around the church world, you've probably heard about Jim Elliott. He's a famous missionary. He left the business world after getting saved to become a missionary and go to Ecuador. And as he was in the process of planning his trip to Ecuador, as he was in the process of leaving everything behind, he wrote this note to his parents. So he writes, Mom and Dad, I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not. He goes on to say, Remember how the psalmist described children. He said they were as a heritage from the Lord, and that every man should be happy who has had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw back the bowstring and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's host. Jim Elliot would go on to die in Ecuador, serving as a missionary, martyred for his belief in Jesus. He says, Mom and Dad, I'm sure you don't agree with this, but what is a child but an arrow? And what is an arrow for? To shoot and let fly. See, I love this because if you kind of put together these two themes from Scripture, it would say that the church and parents really have the same goal, and that's to teach people, to teach children to love the Lord to be so known, to be so overwhelmed with, to be so infatuated with the love that God has for us that they would be in a passionate pursuit of loving God so that love would so motivate, so that love would so inform, so that love would so shape the lives of our children that one day when the time is right, by the sovereignty of God, by the Spirit of God, that just like a warrior, we would put the arrow in the bow and through prayer and faith and trust, we would pull the bowstring back 
and we would let the arrow fly. And that by the sovereignty and the power of God, by the enabling of the Spirit, that that arrow would fly and hit the target that God intended. And see, today we we have a special opportunity because one of the things we do as a church from time to time when the occasion arises, we do something called a child or baby dedication. And really, child or baby dedication is maybe not the best word for it because uh, really what it is, it's it's kind of like a, a parent dedication, so what happens is, is when moms and dads have babies and they decide, hey, we want to make a public commitment to raise this child in the knowledge and the love and the instruction of the Lord, that they want to publicly make that decision. That over and over again, the Bible tells parents that it passionately pleased with parents to love God and then to let their love for God be passed to their children, that the home would be a, a proving ground, that the home would be a school, that the home would be a place that children know who God is, and then grow in their love and their knowledge of God. In fact, just like the scripture we looked at this morning, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4 through 9 says, impress God's commandments on your children. So today we have Paul and Amy, and it's their desire to publicly declare their commitment to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, while at the same time publicly declaring their commitment to raise their son in the way and the instruction of the Lord. So I'm going to invite Paul and Amy and little baby Jack to come on up because this is a, a, a significant moment that we have an opportunity to share together. Uh, one of the things I'll tell you as they're making their way up here is uh, Audrey and I have known Amy forever, like forever, like junior high, high school. I'm not going to tell you how long that's been because it's been a while since we were in high school. Too long, too long. Uh, and then when Amy and Paul started dating, we got to know Paul, and we kind of liked him. I mean, he kind of made it through, and, um, and he's here today. And, uh, and not only have we known them for a long time, but I had the uh, honor and privilege of marrying Amy and Paul, which was, which was a cool deal. Uh, and now today I get the honor and privilege of dedicating their first child. So for me, this is just a really cool uh, moment. And so we want to share this together. Amy and Paul have actually uh, been coming to Redemption Church for a while now. Uh, you'll see Amy kind of going in and out quite a bit. And uh, we've just told her like, hey, you can just have baby Jack in the room and we don't care if he cries, but she's too polite for that. So, um, so please be patient and encourage them. But hey, they want to stand in front of you this morning and make this, uh, this declaration in front of you that they love Jesus and that they want to see their son grow in the instruction of the Lord. So I'm going to ask them some questions. Are you guys ready for this? And uh, flash photography is welcome, so take lots of pictures. Uh, if I'm ruining the picture, which I do, I have a radio face, I can move away, okay? So you don't want to frame the one with me in it. You want to frame the one with this good-looking family in it. But here we go, in all seriousness. Paul and Amy, as parents, have you placed your trust in Christ as your Savior? And are you committed to following him as the Lord? Do you recognize that your child is a gift from God and that you are responsible to train and instruct this child in the things of God? Do you as parents commit that you will bring up this child in the nature and admonition of the Lord? Redemption Church, we really believe that life is a journey and no one should have to do that alone. As parents, Paul and Amy have made a commitment to love and train and disciple their son in the name of, the, in the name of Jesus, but they need help. We really do believe that it takes a village to raise a child. We really do believe it takes a village to make disciples. So Redemption Church, just like I asked Paul and Amy questions and they responded with, we do, 
If you agree, I'm going to ask you to respond to this question with, we do. Redemption Church, do you commit to love, to pray for, to encourage, and to walk alongside Paul and Amy and Jack on their spiritual journey? Let's pray for these guys. Would you guys stand? I'm going to have you come forward just so I can get behind you. How about that? Would you guys join me in praying for these guys? Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And God, we thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you that as we come together, we can open our hearts to love you and to love one another, that we can open our Bibles to learn about you so that we can walk in obedience empowered by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we have opportunities to open our mouths and pray to you and worship you, Jesus, and that you promise that you hear us and you respond. And God, today we lift up Paul and Amy and Jack before you, God. And we thank you for them. We thank you for what you're doing in their lives and in the life of their family. And God, we praise you and thank you that you are at work in their hearts and their lives. And I pray that you would just saturate them with the love you have for them. I pray that you would empower them by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give both Paul and Amy strength and patience and endurance as they raise their child in a way that makes sense for him, in a way that he would be educated in the ways of the Lord, in a way that he would be fulfilled and loved, in a way that he would grow up to be the man that you have intended and created him to be. And God, I pray that in the times when parenting gets hard, when the struggle is real, in the times that we want to lock ourselves in a room and just be alone, God, I pray that you would remind them that you are with them, that you go before them and behind them, that there is nowhere and there is no thing that you are, that you are gone, but you are always with them. And God, may they know and always be reminded that they have a church that loves them, a church that prays for them, a church that wants to do everything we can do to be with them and support them on their journey. God, we don't know what the future holds, but you do. So we commit Paul and Amy to you. We commit young Jack to you, Lord. And we ask that you would mark his life. We ask that he would love you and know you at a young age. And God, we pray that he would spend all his days from this day forward knowing you, loving you, and walking in accordance through the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we love you, and we look forward and believe that the best is yet to come. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, you can applaud that. Yeah. You guys can go take a seat. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.